Hello, and welcome to the House of Apis podcast. I'm Mila. And I'm Katie. And we're very excited for you to join us today. This episode is all about understanding how culture and context has shaped us into the people we are today. And we're also very excited because for this episode, we will have our very first guests at House of Apis. We're so honored to have them join us. But first, let's set a little context for our discussion. Well, from the last episode, you know that one of the pillars at the House of Apis is self. As we shared, we felt that it was important to have a pillar that allowed us to focus on ourselves and be a bit selfish, investing in the areas and topics that are important to each of us as individuals. Why did we feel that this was so important? As women, we have been navigating in a world and society that has set expectations and driven how we should behave, should feel, should be. And for many of us, that has made us invest immense amounts of energy to be what others want us to be instead of being who we really are and feeling good about it. Sacrificing our needs for the needs of others disproportionately, molding ourselves into societal expectations. Additionally, we recognize that context and culture that we live in adds another layer of complexity to these expectations. Subliminally or sometimes very overt signals and messages we are given telling us what to do, who to be, what's right, and what's wrong. So as a global community, we thought it was important to discuss the topic with not just Mila and I, but also two of our friends who grew up in very different contexts from the two of us. So today we will explore how society's expectations have shaped us growing up. And for this discussion, as Katie mentioned, we have invited a couple of wonderful women to join our podcast and share their experiences about growing up as women in the 20th century and living in these 21st century times. So today's guests are two of my very dear friends, and I've worked with both of these women, but I'd like to consider that they're not just colleagues and coworkers. We've become really good friends. And whether they know it or not, they've actually had a lot of influence and have helped shape who I am and how I navigate the world. So the first guest is Susan Long Walsh, who lives here in Seattle, Washington, right down the road from me. And then the other guest is Anjali Gwalani, who is here in the U.S. visiting, but is originally from India. And so let's join in on our conversation with these two uh, lovely women that we'd love to welcome to the House of Apis podcast. Thank you for having me. Hi, thank you for having me as well. So maybe Great. we could just have you do a quick introduction, just a snippet, because we're going to let you share a lot more throughout this podcast. Susan, you want to kick us off with a quick intro of yourself? Sure, most definitely. As Katie said, my name is Susan Long Walsh. I'm born and raised in Seattle, Washington, uh, where I also married and have my family of three adult, wonderful human beings. <laughs> and I work in diversity, equity, and inclusion because as a Black woman, I've never been one without the other, and it's critical for me to follow my passion of equity, particularly with women and underrepresented minorities in the workplace. Hi. Thank you again for having me on this podcast. Indian, born and raised in Mumbai, HR professional, currently living in Los Angeles and exploring what life has to offer me here. Well, we're very excited to have you here. And I think that with the two of you, then we have a very uh, diverse group of women, um, not only on um, where we are coming from, but also on our life situation. So we want to get started and talk about family 
dynamics. So how did you grow up and how growing up in your specific situation and family and context mold you to be the woman that you are today? I can start. This is Susan. That That's such a great question and it makes me smile because it uh, makes me think of my grandmother who I probably quote every day if not once at least five times. My kids called them Gramisms because we called her Gram. <laughs> and she was born in the 1800s in Alabama. And I used to quilt with her as a little girl. And she was the only one in the family that basically shared stories. Because as uh, a Black culture, you typically don't share the stories of pain from your past. You want things better for your children. And my grandmother used to tell me that girls got married off at between the ages of 12 and 15. And I remember as a little girl asking her, how old were you when you got married? And she said, I was 28. And I said, isn't that too old after you're supposed to be 10, 12 to 15 years old to get married? And she said, well, I wasn't going to get married just to be married. I was fine on my own. She said, I was only going to get married if I found a man good enough for me. She said, I already had my own farm. I had my cow, Daisy, I had a pig and a goat, some chickens, and I was absolutely fine. And she was an incredible person. And if I told her today that she was truly a black feminist, she just would scowl over her glasses and all of her five foot tall height and just say, that's nonsense. I don't even know what that is. But she had this incredible faith, but she also treated everyone with the ultimate kindness. And after my grandfather died she had to go into town and work for rich white families and I didn't realize until I was older who took care of her kids and she mm -hmm. talked about in the summer and particularly walking back into the country to her farm that there was always someone lynched and hanging in a tree and she knew that if her sons stayed in Alabama that they would be lynched because she said they were not going to turn the other cheek so mm -hmm. she insisted that they join the military she said I knew they would be going to war, but it was safer than them being lynched in Alabama. And my uncles ironically all got based at Fort Lewis, Washington. They convinced my parents to move out here and thus our family started our life and I was born in Seattle, Washington. And she wow. continued to be a really powerful influence on my life. I'll share another quick story. We were standing at the corner one day, downtown Seattle. There was two men standing across the street and this was in the early 70s and they grabbed hands and they held them a little bit too long and then they quickly let them go because they realized they were out in public i didn't think anything of it because she didn't know anything about gay people especially going to catholic schools and the, and the nuns telling you you were going to go to hell just because your cursive was bad and my grandmother just looked at me and she said, there's someone for everyone. Oh, That's see, so nice. every time I hear a grandism, I wish I had met your grandmother. Yeah. So she just had this kindness that I used to, that I still think about because for somebody that, that witnessed and saw lynchings and did what she did in her life in the South and how she just had to just make it through. Her parents were both dead by the time her and her brother were seven and nine years old. Her grandmother raised her who was a slave and who was illiterate. And so they learned to read from the Bible because her parents ran an underground school to teach slaves to read. And because they were fair-skinned, they had the house jobs. And so when children were being educated within the home, that's how they were able to absorb and learn how to read without the masters knowing that this is what they were doing. 
So the stories that she shared were absolutely so incredible. You know, we were never allowed to ask questions as kids because you were meant to be seen and not heard. And then I went to Catholic schools with nuns in the 60s and you didn't talk unless you were called upon. So, you know, I shrunk myself, but I wish if I could go back, uh, I'd have a, a real curiosity radar and I'd ask a million questions, especially of her. Wow. That's awesome. We need an episode on grandmothers and aunts and stuff because Mila has an amazing story as well, too. So we need to have an episode to highlight these badass feminists in our families who would have never called themselves badass feminists. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was survival yeah. and strength. Yeah. Yeah. And then that is uh, beautiful to see that is something that stays with you and then marks who you mm-hmm. are and how you are raised as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Anjali. Hi. For me, my biggest influencers have been my parents and out of my mom and dad, my mom particularly. Both my parents were born in Karachi, which was part of pre-partition India. In August 1947, um, India won its independence from the British and split into two independent nation countries, India and Pakistan. This caused, I don't know if everybody knows, but this caused most disrupt, unplanned and tragic transfer of population that human history has ever seen. Uh, They came to Mumbai with their respective families at the age of 10 with whatever they could get and carry in their hands. They both got married, not such an early age, which is a typical marriageable age in India, through an arranged alliance at the age of 29. I was born when my mom was 40, born in Mumbai, raised in Mumbai. Both my parents were working parents, uh, again, which was not very common in the early 1980s especially when you don't have a support and you're living by yourself. I, growing up, I saw my parents spend all their time and resources in helping us build our mind and life skills as humans and not specifically as girls in the society. I also saw them spending time in developing themselves as they were trying to learn to be good partners and parents. And I have an older sister who is again somebody who uh, I look up to, is two years older to me. We grew up as friends and as sisters together. From the time I was seven months old, Until I was about six years old, my sister and I were dropped to a daycare facility every day. But then my parents had aspirations uh, for their daughters and they wanted to give the best space for them to grow as young girls. So they decided to get house help uh, throughout the day as they were working and making a living. I saw some really uh, great influences as I was growing up. I didn't see too much of a distinction of what only a man can do versus what only a woman can do. I saw uh, my dad cooking for days. My mom was at a personal development workshop, which they both had decided (laughs) to attend independently. I saw my mom get into a swimsuit at the age of 45, only because she wanted to be with her girls as they were learning to swim at a very early age. We did most of the things together. If I remember going back into my childhood and my early days, But at the same time, I also remember all of us got our individual spaces to Mm. learn and grow as individuals. I even remember my dad requesting the owner of a local typing institute meant for adults. And he asked the owner to enroll his two daughters uh, into a summer vacation class when I was just seven years old, which was really awesome to see a man do that and have that vision for his girls when 
a life at that time as i saw other girlfriends was not very typical in the life that i led with my parents and my sister like i said my mom has been one of the biggest influencers in my life particularly as my dad passed away when i was 14 years old which was sudden mm. and my mom suddenly had to take a dual responsibility of raising two young daughters and she fearlessly uh did that and and so effortlessly that i just i'm so influenced by what she did every single day mila what about you for me my family had been a bit influenced we had been a very tight family and we still are but it's more than just my parents and uh, my brothers i have two brothers that are younger than me it is the extended family i grew up in venezuela in caracas My mother is from a family of eight brothers and sisters and my father has uh, half brothers so we were more in contact with my mother's side of the family and my grandmother's from my father's side we were 25 cousins so we would all get together in my grandmother's house so there was always a lot of noise kids running around and everybody was in everybody's business i don't know if you have seen them the, the movie my big uh, fat greek wedding <laughs> basically that is like how my grandmother's house was so there was always everybody on top of each other i was the the oldest uh, girl that was born in that family so i have six cousins that are older than me that are boys and for me first i was very much a tomboy and because all these kids were i was running around with them and they were all boys so then i would do the same so i i never saw that there was a difference between being a girl and being a boy like there was never that distinction and i had two brothers we were raised the same way so we had the same opportunities and we had the same limitations in a way that my parents were strict and then you had to go to school and do your uh, chores and everything and it was the same for everybody my father is very much uh is super helpful at home he does a lot of the chores so it was not that my mother was doing some chores and and my father was doing others so then it was very much fully split and in some cases my father would do m- most of the chores in a way but my mother always worked always she's a lawyer and she was working for the government she was in the ministry of justice and she was in a, a very high pot- positions and she was very much this strong woman so i would always see her going out for work and then my father also they would go together because they work in the same area and they would always be doing the same thing so i never saw a difference between one and the other and with my brothers it was the same there was a moment that my mother got a job that um made her uh, travel a lot and then my father was the one that was staying at home and he was taking care of us locally and then it's maybe similar to you um, Anjali that we had some help at home that is something that in our countries that's the way that the society works mm-hmm. and then we had somebody that was taking care of us the one thing that for me was uh, a little bit difficult growing up is that i was very introvert in a family of loud people and everybody in your business. <laughs> so I think that made me a little bit shy or disconnected or trying to find my space and that is something that I see but as a as a girl growing up I never saw myself 
less capable. And if I look at my grandmothers, my grandmother on my father's side, she was a kick-ass woman. And she, the director of the national radio in Venezuela, she was uh, in Congress. Uh, she uh, opened her own radio station. Um, and she was divorced twice in the 60s. And my grandmother on the other side, she was a stay-at-home mom, but she actually raised eight kids and she was really hardcore as well. So I had very strong influences with the women in my life. And my father had been super supportive to my mother and to myself as well. Well, I would describe how I grew up as a, a collection of paradoxes because I grew up in a suburb of Western New York and my mom is one of six, but we did not live close to her family. And my dad was an only child and we lived close to his parents. And so I, I didn't grow up with cousins all around me or a huge extended family. It was basically my mom, my dad, my brother and I, and then my father's parents, my grandmother and my grandfather, and occasionally a visit with the relatives in Minnesota. So I grew up in a little bit of the small family bubble. As far as growing up, one of the things that I loved was my parents really sparked my curiosity because anytime I asked a question or I didn't know, now, I don't know, maybe this was because they didn't know, but it was always look it up. And back in those days, it meant I was sitting on the floor with the Encyclopedia Britannica looking it up. Like I was not going out to Google, I was flipping through books or I was at the library. For some of our listeners, perhaps that seems bizarre and strange, but that is a reality. But so I was constantly curious. There were a few things that kind of pushed me that I think they always challenged me to go explore and to be curious about. So I, I appreciate that because I think it's also made me from the perspective of gender roles or differences in society. I'm constantly why, why, why? The other piece was that my father worked what was called trick work. And what that meant was that one week he worked from eight in the morning until 4 p.m. The next week he worked from 4 p.m. to midnight. The week after that he worked from mm. midnight to 8 a.m. Like. It was a, a whole life of, is dad sleeping? Is dad here? Is dad, like, it was constantly trying to figure that out. Now, that being said, when he was there, he was there. Spending time with dad was out in the side yard playing soccer or chopping wood. I'm laughing at Susan with don't lift anything too heavy. My dad was like, you lift it. And if you bought it, you carry it. And if you, like, all this stuff. So, so. You know, but the time with dad was different. So it was more time with my mom. And like you, Susan, my mom was brought up in a Catholic school environment with a very religious mother who like with six kids, she managed that. That home was run with precision and a little bit of fear. And then her, my grandfather was just an avid reader and those types of things. So I think why I say it's paradox was I was always challenged to be curious. I was always told to stand up for myself and to also stand up for others. I always questioned things. So when something didn't seem right or it seemed mean or it seemed cruel or it just, I was the neighborhood's like bodyguard, like people that were bullied. I was there chasing bullies down with my tap shoes, my soccer cleats and my roller skates. Nobody messed <laughs> with the people that lived near me. 
But on the other hand, I had my mom who was raised in a very specific environment that while she supported all those things, I did get signals of what a good girl is and how a, a lady dresses and how a lady sits and like all of these things that send signals of who boys are and who girls are in the world. And I think if I sat down and had this conversation with her, I think she'd be horrified that those signals were sent out because she was trying to shake those from how she was brought up. But it was an interesting, like, you know, you can take on the world, but just know these are the rules. (laughs) And so that push and play. Yeah, it's it's great that you you are talking about these things that are so contradictory, right? You are supposed to be doing everything that you want to do, but at the same time, these are the rules. There are many things that we can talk about. There are so many interesting questions that I have also. But now we have to pause for a moment for this week's compelling question. Yes, to our guests, every week we ask a compelling question that Mila and I tackle and then we bounce it to our guests as well. And then we put it out on our social media channels for all of our listeners to participate as well, too. So we look forward to seeing your responses to the compelling question of this episode. And so the question is, what is the single thing you would change about how society sees or pressures women to be and why? So if you had to pick one thing that you could just knock out of the system, what would that be? The first thing that comes to mind is the need that women have to be pretty all the time, makeup and hair and this and that. I think that need is what makes you insecure, is what makes you not be who you want to be, is what makes you not cut your hair if you want to, or not, you know, wear red lipstick if you want to, or just cut your nails or whatever, or wear pants or wear leggings the whole day or not wear a bra. So these are the things that I think that constrain you because women feel and society makes it and society as a whole. So it's not only is our family, is our classmates, is our the men in our life, is all the other women in our life is, oh, you have hair, gray hair. Why don't you dye your hair? Or so-and-so didn't shave her legs. Did you see that? I mean, it's, there is way too much pressure to change your appearance or to be always pretty or on the go or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is the one thing that I will change because it is not that, okay, yeah, you should look presentable. No, it's not that. It is the fact that it starts like a chain of events. And the chain of event is all the insecurity, is the feeling less, is the feeling inadequate, is the feeling that you have to please everybody. So that is what mm-hmm. I would change. I, I was laughing, though, because you did say that if you don't want to wear a bra, and that's what constrains you. And I almost lost it. Because I'm like, yes, it does. It definitely does. Trust me, that's been one of the positives of the pandemic. Yeah. Not yeah. wearing a bra. Yeah, oh, yes. camera only picks you up from here. <laughs> I totally agree with what you just said, because one of the things around with House of Apis is if you want to live an Instagram life, like that's your choice. I also think that there's a lot of perceived perfection that puts a ton of pressure on people. And how do you shake some of that? For me, minus I'm going to give girls and boys a break with what I wish, 
which is just the gender stereotypes that get ingrained in children when they're young. Because I think it's toxic on all sides. And, and right, like, in, and gender identity in general is a very complex topic that we should tackle in a podcast as well. But the fact of, like, girls do this and boys do this. These are the the soft skills and the soft things that girls do. And this is what boys do. And they're harder and stronger. And I think it's not good for the psyche and the identity development for anybody. I think if I had the magic wand, I, I would bust up that whole programming that gets done when you're little. All right, ladies, we bought you a little time. Yeah, go for it. First- I, I would I would like I had almost the same thing but I want to say it's say it's similar but it's different in many ways which is create an image within the minds of children whether a boy or a girl of what possibilities are in this world which is not a step by step process of okay now you got to do this in school you got to behave behave in a particular manner if you're a girl or a boy, and then you have to uh, go to college because you need to get a degree because you need to earn, Mm, get mm -hmm. married, have kids. And so really breaking that typical standard or the set uh, life that I think we are shown uh, either through social media or through the conversations that we have, but really have a variety of possibilities of what life is and can be whether it's a girl or a boy it's it's really a choice one makes and and it's what works for each of them individually yeah yeah susan what about you when when you asked that question katie and and the first thing that came into my mind was equal pay for women yeah and i would say that (laughs) When I I just, I think about the only so many times in school uh, and then being the one and done in the workplace, uh, being the first Mm. person of color to be hired into so many of the roles that I've been in and knowing that I'm being paid less and I'm being paid less, not only because I'm a woman, but because I'm a person of color and I'm supposed to be grateful. And so now I'll be 66 years old here in August and I think about all the money I've left on the table. Yeah, because yeah. of the perfectly approved discriminatory practices against what I should be being paid when I know that I'm contributing as much or more to my role because I have to because I'm the only yeah. I'm supposed to be grateful the bar was probably lower to hire me and and as I was saying earlier when I was raised it was you're always going to have to work harder that was what we were told and so I realized once I started working in corporate America exactly what that meant. Yeah. Working the little harder. Katie would be going, but that's not fair. Why? Right. But that's yeah, not absolutely. Fair. Absolutely. I'm saying- <laughs> yes. 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 That's not fair. That's not- well, thank yeah. you, ladies. That was our compelling question of this week. And again, for our listeners, we'd love to hear the single thing you would change about society as far as pressures on women. And why is that the thing that you would want to change? You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let's continue our topic from today. What are some of the 
pressures that the society or the community uh, put on you. So for example, I remember that I was very vocal. I would say, no, I don't like this, or this is not right. And I, I would be very opinionated, a very strong. And I remember that people would say to me that I had a very strong character, but they would say it to me in a way that it was wrong. Yeah, I guess I was, but then that was always making me feel that it was a bad thing to be strong and opinionated. And it was because my teachers also were saying, oh, but that is too strong way to put it. And then I remember that was something that for me, then it felt, okay, I'm supposed to be quiet. I'm supposed to be a little bit more uh, modest or I'm supposed to not uh, vocalize everything that I feel or that I need or that I'm thinking. And that was something that I would have loved that if that is not the case anymore. It's okay, maybe um, somebody that is teaching you, whether it's your teacher or your parents, that they would channel that energy in a different way, but not that they put a stamp on you, oh, you are very uh, strong and then you have yeah. a strong bossy character. So yeah, that is, for example, for me, something that, that I remember that was that pressure. What about you? Actually, I have too many of them. <laughs> so I'm try. Oh yeah, for me as well. I'm gonna try and cover as many for the audience. And the Indian culture is so different in many ways to the Western culture, especially from the 1980s. There was this pressure of being nice as a girl. So I remember I used to love reading. Um, and my dad was a voracious reader. So he used to get us a lot of books to read, comic books to read but that was still not enough. So I used to go to this old used bookstore and buy books without telling them. So it was a secret that only my sister and I knew that I was buying at least like one comic book or two comic books in a week through the pocket money that I was getting from my father. And so I decided to number them all and said, maybe I should distribute it all in my class. And so I distributed it to everybody. One of my classmates was reading it in between a class and he got caught. So the teacher asked him, you know, why are you doing this? And why are you reading a comic book in the middle of a class? And he's like, Anjali has given it to everybody. I, I was not sure if I did something wrong, but then my mom was called. Uh, to where the teacher could complain about me and tell you know me to behave better and so my mom had to take a uh, time off from her work come see my school teacher and it did shake me up a bit because my mom I really looked up to her she didn't say anything this is something that really left a mark on you know to which that built pressure for me to not be myself or have fun I think it was my curious mind that was trying to read more and also engage others in, in my yes. fun. Many other pressures that, you know, as we were growing up, as girls grow up in India, they are told, oh, you should know how to look a particular kind and beautiful. You should know how to cook. You should know to do things at home. And, and those were some society pressures that I unconsciously built in my mind. While when I would go up to my mom and say, you're not teaching me to cook. You don't want to teach me to cook? <laughs> and she'd be like, no, you're fine. I just need you to do what you're doing. And, and so it really sometimes make me think as a girl, as I was growing up, why, why, is, it, why is it that my mom is different? <laughs> There's a joke I made to her when I was leaving for Los Angeles because I lived all my life with her. 
I was like, you know, I'm now going to live by myself, but I don't know how to cook a proper meal. Do you feel bad that your Indian daughter doesn't know anything to cook? And she's like, you'll get it. <laughs> so I think the the trick that my mom used and she knew, she saw, we also are a large extended family. So I saw uh, women cook. I know the smell and the taste. So I have a sense of it. It was a matter of just using some of those recipes to cook it. So she instinctively knew that, you know, that I think she'll get it. She'll make some mistakes, but I think that's going to be the best way to. And that's the approach as I think back on everything that she's done is the approach that she has taken in life for my sister and myself. Well, my grandmother used to say, if you can read, you can cook. Just make sure it tastes like something. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever something was. <laughs> you know, there there was the pressure to be a good girl. It was the the pressure of coming from Baptist black parents from the South who came north for a better life for themselves and their children, and then the pressures of nuns in the sixties. And if you weren't good, you were going to purgatory or you were going to hell. We had to go to confession once a week mass oh, wow. once a week at school with our navy surge uniforms on and the beanies that you wore and catholics were the one true religion the books in the library had to be approved by the vatican so outside of books about all the saints which of course were all white we read nancy drew or laura <laughs> ingles wilder and that was pretty much the collection my brother and sister and i used to always race to the library and, and check out books and particularly in the summer joined the summer reading club because with my parents working, we weren't allowed to go outside. And so that, that pressure of being good was uh, more powerful than I actually even thought it was. And then there was, of course, I, I realized as being older that there was also that, that pressure of making sure, even though my parents never said anything about race, as I got older, I realized there was a huge pressure to make sure that you were really good because you were typically the only one. And so there was that burden almost that you're being good because you are you are the only black kid among all these white kids. And so there was that unsaid pressure. And then there was the pressure of the religion of knowing that you could do the least little thing and you'd end up in hell. So it was, you know, it was interesting dynamics. And I think that the positive of the pressure of my parents never saying, you're, this is going to happen to you in life because you're black. It was always just, you're going to have to work harder. And mm. as I got older, I realized that being so naive about what was happening to me that was so racist, I, I never knew that it was about race. I was so clueless. I was the only black girl in my high school class all four years. And I, it didn't occur to me until I was much older, the things that a lot of the teachers said to me and a lot of the things the nuns said to me and the things parents said to me and the things the kids said to me, it never occurred to me that when they said, you're not like my parents said you would be. It never occurred to me it was yeah, that what they it meant race. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Susan, for sharing that. I sure. think the thing I would add for mine, like from a societal pressure is, and I don't know if the three of you had this as well. Did you have home ec in school? <laughs> Where I put girls... two left sleeves on my nightgown. Yeah. <laughs> I did that, that with my, the, my choir the nun blouse. was so pretty with me. <laughs> I was going to sew my 
choir blouse for the concert and I had one sleeve was too tight and one sleeve was too long and too big. Um, but all the girls went to home economics class to learn how to cook and bake and sew and do womanly type things. By the way, my cake was a disaster and all the boys went to to shop so they learned how to cut wood do woodwork and electronics and stuff like that and i think about that cake by the way i was trying to do like a cake in the shape of a hot air balloon and it had these two mangy barbie doll heads sticking out of the basket and the frosting was chunky it was gross and i remember saying to the teacher can i go to shop i think i would be better with that no girls don't do shop my first job was supposed to be babysitting i hated babysitting i hated it i i i would feel sick to my stomach when i would be getting ready to go i would hate every moment while i was there so i just stopped doing it and when i was old enough to work i went and worked at a store because i just didn't want to babysit and I remember sitting in a class with a good friend of mine and he said, how many kids are you going to have? I'm like, I'm not going to have any children. I knew in 10th grade that I did not want to have children. And um, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, you'll probably have two or three. And I'm like, no, I know I do not want to have children. And I actually, I remember I wrote down in a piece of paper and I told him to bring it back to the high school reunions that I, Katie Capoza, will tell you right now, I will not have children. And... I am 50 and I have not had children because I just knew it in my soul. That was not my calling. I All these signals that were telling me what my role was as I got older. And, and I remember my brother when he passed away at the age of 24 and I was 26. I sat down with my parents and said, when my brother passed away, your chance to be a grandparent passed away as well too and I feel very horrible about this but I need to talk to you about it because it's weighing very heavily on me and and thankfully my parents are like we lived our lives we wanted children we raised children if having children is not what you want to do that's not our life to live we would have loved to have had grandchildren but we're fine not having them as well like you you do what's right for you and I'm very grateful for that because I do know I have friends that the moment they, before they're even engaged, they're already being asked about how many kids they're going to have and the pressures for that. So I really appreciate that my parents didn't put that pressure on it. But boy, oh boy, was there enough signals as I was growing up that my job was to do what I needed to do until I found a person, found a man, got married, had two kids, and <laughs> and baked really ugly cakes and sewed ugly shirts. I remember someone once telling me, well, that I had a womb that I better use it. Oh, oh. my Lord. Yeah, and it was a woman. But anyway. I think at this point, Mila, we should probably just go to the did you know. So for our listeners um, that have been with us, you know that every week we do a segment called Did You Know, which we bring forward a concept or a piece of information that we think might be new to people or, or is reasonably provocative. And for today's Did You Know segment, we want to discuss the concept of time poverty and what that means relative to women. So from a paper titled Beyond Material Poverty, What Time Poverty Matters for Individuals, Organizations, and Nations by Laura M. Giorgi, sorry if I killed her name, from the <laughs> London Business School, and Ashley V. Vilhans from Harvard Business School, defined as the chronic feeling of having too many things to do and not enough time to do them, time poverty is increasing in society. 
Data from a Gallup U.S. Daily poll, a nationally representative sample of U.S. residents, shows that in 2011, 70% of employed Americans reported that they never had enough time. I can totally relate. And in 2018, this proportion increased to 80%. But why is this important? Is that according to a Gates Foundation letter in 2016, compared to men, women globally spend about twice as much time on unpaid labor. Labor done or work done for no pay, including cooking, cleaning, and caring for children and the elderly. That's an average about four and a half hours a day, with the gap between genders ranging from 45 minutes in Scandinavia to five hours in India. In the US, where the gap is 90 minutes, if we could put a value on women's annual unpaid work, it would total about $1.5 trillion. Trillion. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> the world is making progress by doing three things economists call recognize, reduce, and redistribute. Recognize that unpaid work is still work, reduce the amount of time and energy it takes, and redistribute it more evenly between women and men. And most of this unpaid work is actually things that are traditionally thought as women's responsibilities, like cooking and cleaning and caring for others. And it's true and more evident in poorer countries where women need to walk long distances to fetch water, for instance, versus in more developed countries where you only need to open the faucet. But society is teaching us and reinforcing the notion that women are the ones doing these jobs. And if you look at advertising, how many of the creative pieces show men doing the household chores in the U.S., according to the Gates Foundation letter, only 2% of the time. And at the same time, we as society, we look at a man taking care of their kids and we praise them for being such a good father. But we don't really do that with mothers. We see that as a given. Of course, women are taking care of their kids. That's of course. But how many TikTok, Facebook, or YouTube videos of that brushing their girl's hair or putting kids to sleep by singing softly you have seen going viral and being praised? All of us melt about it. We find it so cute and so exceptional. But we, society, had made it so. This should be normal. And if we praise a father or a man for cooking dinner and cleaning, we should do the same for women. We are all part of the problem as well as part of the solution. So that's actually what we hope that you take away from this did you know question is one understanding what time poverty is, but we'd love for you to think about big or small, what are the actions or space where you can gently or boldly push on patriarchal norms and culture. And feel free to join us in the conversation on our social media channels where we will post the did you know article for you to react and respond to. We already talked about the idea of being a good girl and how the society looks at us and what the pressures are. How is your personal experience being in society right now? And do you feel that there are some things that you need to do still to keep proving yourself? Even now, mm -hmm. Susan, that you were saying you are turning 66, are you feeling that you still need to be proving yourself? Yes, I do. No. <laughs> Yeah, I continue to see and feel the pressure <clears throat> and I'm new uh, in a time in the United States, Asian, so I continue to feel the need to amplify my voice as Susan is saying and I'm learning as I'm exploring new ways to work in a country during this strange time. I do also continue to hear uh, comments about 
oh you, you've left back your 84 year old mom back at home and you're living a, a mm. life here to experience something new so there's the question is filled with guilt yeah. <clears throat> whereas my relationship with my mother is secure in <clears throat> what we had chosen because this is something that she wanted to do herself as well to be able to grow without me even at this age and so i do continue to feel that pressure of the questions uh, and the comments that i get being a single woman about how i'm taking care of my mother how i could even make a choice like that at this time in my life and also how i'm still viewed as oh i need to you know be doing things that uh, standard women need to do which is also are you like going to get married uh, or are you going to be uh, growing in your career but it's really more the conventional questions that i get questioned about which i have to keep battling yeah the, the one thing the one thing that i have learned is to amplify my voice particularly because i wasn't allowed to use it unless i was given permission and so i have to thank my my husband for that he was my first date in high school and we've been together ever since so you know this year it'll be 50 years of of growing up with someone but also having somebody to tell you how capable you are and how great you are and you have a lot to say and you should say it and not but getting past that fear of amplifying my voice when i've been raised that you don't use it and so because of just what's happening in our country and in the world particularly with us in the united states having a dual pandemic one covid-19 and one racism the ability to amplify my voice and to talk more about race in the workplace racism and sexism is critical for me mm-hmm. and then we start to really peel back this onion of the systems and the policies that are built to ensure that women and people of color and people who are poor and in certain class systems are kept in their place while everybody else succeeds that's just something that is critical for me to make a difference on uh, while I'm on this side of the grass and I'll go out kicking and screaming to make a change and I just think that women are the most powerful of the two genders and not because I'm a woman but when you hear people say oh he needs to grow a pair or you need to have some balls and I'm like actually you need a vagina vagina births <laughs> vagina births ch- children if men had to push a child out of their balls it'd kill them and so to me it's you need you don't need to grow a pair you need to grow a vagina oh, yeah. and, you know and understand the power and the strength behind that and then collectively as women we come together because whatever is heavy we can lift it better together and collectively by the way your don't grow a pair grow a vagina that is an excellent t-shirt so camila to your question this has waned a little bit in the last couple of years as mark and i have gotten into our 50s but the amount of people that asked mark and i why we didn't have children because we would be such great parents is just annoying like I, and and my answer always was no we wouldn't be because one we don't want them and two there are so many other things that i want to usher into the world that to me raising a child is not one of them and i would find it a distraction and i know my personality and that would be felt by the child i have no doubt and i'm sure that continues for other individuals Mark and I are just getting old so people have given up on us but 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 those are the things that I would add to that. 
Okay, ladies, so this time we have to move on because it's an interesting conversation, but we have to go to our last segment of today, that it is, it doesn't all suck. So as the listeners that have been with us from the beginning know, there are a lot of really amazing things happening out there and amazing people. And while we have, uh, we likely wrestle with some heavy topics on this podcast and within our community, we always like to highlight the good that is happening all around us. So that's why this is a segment, it doesn't all suck. Katie? So this episode's moment is all about a dog's nose. So man's best friend has proven a loyal ally once again, this time the fight against breast cancer. The humble pooch is the inspiration behind a new device that provides affordable, pain-free, and non-invasive testing for breast cancer. Most of the credit for the home testing kit, however, needs to go to a Spanish engineer, Judith Yiro Benet. I'm not sure if I'm saying that. Boy, this is the episode I massacre everybody's names, and I apologize to everyone. It's called the Blue Box, and it uses artificial intelligence that mimics a dog's nose to analyze urine samples and identify breast cancer biomarkers. Benet decided to focus on breast cancer testing after coming across a study by the Catalan Department of Health, which found that 41% of women skipped mammogram screenings because they found them too painful. And yeah, the Blue Box is easy to use. All women have to do is put a urine sample inside the device and wait for the result to be sent to them via their smartphone. Every second that the urine is inside the blue box, it is sending a signal to the cloud where our artificial intelligence algorithm is hosted. And then the signal will go back to the phone so the user gets a result. In early trials, the blue box gave an accurate reading more than 95% of the time, offering the potential for early diagnosis and better patient outcomes. And larger trials are now needed. So hopefully soon there will be a blue box in health centers and universities and house doctors all over the world and we can maybe stop having the joy of being squished. So that's this week's It Doesn't All Suck. Or should I say it doesn't all squish? <laughs> I couldn't resist. Thank you to our guests, Susan and Anjali, for joining us today as the first guests of the House of Apis podcast. But before we finish up, as you know by now, we are going to give this episode's ask. This week, we are going to challenge you to do an activity that gets you to connect with your thoughts. Sit quietly or put some soft music, meditate, start dancing, whatever gets you thinking. Evaluate one single thing that you feel you do because either it is expected of you, it is pressure onto you, or it is uh, quote unquote how women should do it. It could be anything from wearing heels to ordering a salad instead of the burger or to agreeing with your partner's choice because you think that's what you are supposed to do. So when you have identified this topic, reflect on how it makes you feel and decide what you will do to change it. We'll put this ask on our social media channels and we'd love for you to share your thoughts with our community. Well, everyone, that is it for today's podcast. And for our listeners at home, thank you for tuning in. Thank you again to our guests, Susan and Anjali. And please visit our social media platforms at House of Apis or our website, www.houseofapis.com to let us know what you think about these topics and for more information on how to invest in yourself. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Join us for our next episode where we'll be talking about health, why we are so willing to give it, but just so darn hesitant to ask for it. And until then, good morning from Seattle and good evening from Amsterdam. Bye-bye.